0: Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindiewest.org, or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit. 1 Samuel chapter 11, let's kind of dive in there. It was uh, about two Sundays ago, we were actually in chapter 10, and uh, we finished at verse 24. I purposely did not have us kind of cover that last little paragraph, those last verses of chapter 10, because I want to bring them in today. So actually, let's pick up there, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Let me pick up at verse 24, you ready? Here we go. Verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, referring to Saul? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted. What did they shout? I think they were more exuberant than that, but (laughs) verse 25, (laughs) yada, 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 Uh, Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and wrote them in a book, laid them up before the Lord. Man, could spend time on that, but we won't be today. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Verse 26, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Very cool. But, verse 27, some worthless fellows... This is actually the second time in 1 Samuel the term is being used, here referring to another group. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, Saul, held his peace. So what's going on here? Uh, Catching up with it all. Saul, uh, this farm kid, is being chosen by the Lord. And I'll say this, he's not a loser choice. He is not a loser choice at all. And I say that because of what's happened in chapter 8. God's people demand Samuel appoint for them a king like the other nations. That was a sad thing. In fact, Samuel's so saddened by it. In fact, the Lord just states it as it is by saying that what's really going on is God's people, I want to say that again, God's people have rejected the Lord. That's really what's happening at the core of this. You can look on the surface of it all, but at the heart of it all, what's really going on is God's people, and let me say that again, God's people are essentially functioning under, but at the same time rejecting the Lord. It's just an odd, odd thing. Um, uh, So Samuel warns them, including telling them that uh, this kind of governing, like the rest of the world, is just going to result in taking, taking, taking from you. Uh, that's just what happens with governments. I'm grateful for our government, pray for our government, and yet at the same time, there's an aspect of it, that's just the way it works out in a broken world. And so he reminds them of that. But they're like, no, we want a king. And we want a king like the rest of the nations. And so God tells Samuel to give them what they want. And I'll just say this, with that, I am expecting God to give them a loser of a king. Why? Because they have rejected the Lord So shouldn't the Lord get them back and give them a reject? I mean, you want to reject me? I'll give you a reject. But here's what's so cool. God is not giving them a reject. Even if you know the rest of the story of Saul, in your head you're going like, which Endor? And all this bizarre stuff. But we're not there yet. Right now, I'm telling you right now, I like this guy. And this guy is not a loser choice. And that tells us so much about God. That even when his people, outright to his face, even after being warned, reject him, he's not like, reject me? I'll get you back. But that's how often we think. By the way, why do we think that? Why do we think that God is so quick to crush And stingy with his grace. Why do we think that God is like fast to fry. And lame to love. Might it be because we're that way? But God is altogether different than you and I. Thank the Lord. For that. And the fact is they deserve getting a reject king from the Lord. But the Lord... Isn't giving them what they deserve. And Matt set us up perfectly for that with what he said today. We don't deserve God's grace. Oh, by the way, that's why it's called grace. By the way, what's the deal with these worthless fellows? Who cares? Because they matter in chapter 11. So let's go to chapter 11. Here we go. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. They won't matter for a little while here, but let's cover the text. Verses 1 through 3. Troubles brewing east of the Jordan. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. If you want to go to the back of your Bible any time here during this time, look at the maps, you'll find that the territories we're talking is east of the Jordan River. There's the Sea of Galilee, there's the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. This is all east of that. We think and we view most of all of Israel is really west of that. So it's kind of on that uh, Transjordan side of things that's going on that this is taking place. Verse 2, but uh, Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. Um, The right eye was very important in military battles. I'm finding my place. That I gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may uh, send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. (laughs) Okay, let's just sit on this here for a little bit. A little bit about Nahash the Ammonite. Uh, The Ammonites were related to the Israelites. Let me say that again. The Ammonites are actually related to the Israelites. That goes all the way back to uh, their uh, descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot, Genesis 19. So it's kind of within the lineage of family tie that they're all related. Uh, An ancient Dead Sea scroll tells us that Nahash was titled an Ammonite king and had already done the gouge your right eye out thing with the Gadites and the Reubenites. (laughs) Sounds like a deli. Um, But he had already done this in it, and and here Nahash is terrorizing the Israelites, uh, which means that Nahash might have been one of the reasons that the Israelites are like, we want a king like the rest of the world to protect us. So he may be one of the guys who's kind of been part of, uh, of their wanting all this. And it's interesting, actually in 2 Samuel chapter 10, I believe that it is, that Nahash is actually mentioned as an ally of King David. Uh, but here he's not. He is no ally of the Israelites at this point in time. So a treaty conversation takes place, which blows my mind. So here, Nahash, rather than going into a full-out, long-out battle that ends up destroying all of the things that he could take and pillage, and, and in that, rather than doing that, and rather than killing a large number of his own lineage of people, they have this conversation about trying to uh, get out of this and work this out. And so he's wanting to handicap them. He's wanting to humiliate them. But he's also not a dummy. He wants as much of that he can pillage. And he also doesn't want to look bad in the whole thing of the lineage of it all. And so here he's wanting to pluck their eyes out. And he's wanting to enslave them. And so, uh, so the leaders of Jabesh Gilead they make this counteroffer. Uh, when, you, when you read through this, you just go, "You what? You're trying to like work this out?" I mean, in this, this is one of the things. I'll just say this: God is sovereign over the kings, and as this is taking place, God is doing this in the kind of way. If I were Nahash, I would be like. Off with your head (laughs) at that point. I mean, if you're really in that place, it's like, what are you trying to do? Make a deal with me on this. Why would I give you seven days for you to go try and find someone to come and save yourselves? Yeah, I'm in on that. No, I'm not in on that. But God is involved in the details of everything. Even the Jabesh Gilead leaders Thinking to ask this and including the fact of Nahash going, I'm game with that. I actually think, I'm reading between the lines, I actually part think what's going on here is Nahash is thinking, you know what? What a better way to humiliate you. You want to go and find someone? I'll let you go and find someone. You're such a group of losers that you won't have anyone and now I will doubly crush and doubly humiliate you. In all of this whole thing, God is in control of the kings, friends. So here's the central need of chapter 11 God's people are in need of being saved from impending enslavement to their enemy. Let me say that again, because that has practical application for you and I. What's the central need of the text here? It is God's people are in need of being saved. God's people are in need of being saved from impending enslavement to the enemy. Are you getting what's going on here? This says practical application. Do you ever feel, as someone who is, is a child of God, God's people? Do you ever feel like you are in that place of impending enslavement to the enemy? Uh, this one preaches, friends. This text preaches. So here we go, verses four through eight. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people they wept aloud. By the way, you've got to understand, we're a pretty timid culture worldwide, compared worldwide. This is a culture that when like, they wept out loud and they mourned out loud, I am telling you, they were full in. So in this, as a Jewish person would be reading this, they're understanding this wasn't like a <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, it is loud, it is boisterous, and it is all over. And they wept aloud. It's interesting that here these messengers go and they report the matters to the ears of the people. Why not to Samuel? And why not to Saul, who was just made king? That would make sense. But in it, this is part of what's happening. Now behold, that's kind of like an attention grabber. Now, now here's the big piece of the beef of the text. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. I love this dude even more. Yep, got a bromance right now with Saul. Why is that? We get that. We live on the west side, man. We're, 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 we're the kind of people where farming is right in our backyard. Many of you are farmers in this. And it's a kind of thing to where, what's this 30-year-old dude, this 30-year-old good-looking, thoughtful, respectful, humble guy at this time who was selected by the Lord. He never applied for it. He never had to go out and try and earn it. He didn't have to do an election process. He was called out of the baggage where he was hiding from the whole thing, to be king. And he was just named king in chapter 10. And where's he at? On his couch, being fed grapes and, and fanned as the king. No, he's like where he's most comfortable. What does a big brood of a farm kid do? He goes home and he gets right behind the ox again. Because it's time to plow his field. I'm telling you, I love this guy. And at the same time, and when I'm saying that, I'm like, what went wrong with this guy? If you know the rest of the story, it's going to be coming. He's home with his ox. And all of a sudden, he hears. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, oh, what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? The king doesn't even know. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Verse 6. I think the pinnacle of the chapter and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger Saul's anger was greatly kindled he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying whoever does not come out for Saul and Samuel that's interesting they're both together and on this so shall it be done to his oxen and then the dread of the Lord it's a trembling fear of the Lord, fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. I'm the kind of guy, I so get into stories, that I literally do ask this question, did Saul know that? you know back in chapter 10 verse 10 the spirit of god rushed upon saul and he prophesied and i'll say this again did he know all that happened all there you see so much of what we think about the spirit of god is just out of acts chapter 2 and in all of this i'm not even necessarily so sure that saul was like Ugh. That's kind of what we think of, like glowing and and then and crazy wild kooky stuff starts going on. I just want to press into you because I actually don't think that's the whole objective of the text here because it could have told us all that if that was the case. But what's going on here in this is that the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul in the Old Testament. Divine empowerment like that is oftentimes symbolizing and accompanying the anointing of someone into leadership or prophetic ministry or into kingship, like what's going on here. And so out of this, Saul is divinely empowered by the Spirit again. And there are four things that show up. First, a Spirit-led righteous indignation. One commentator said, Saul's own spirit is filled with righteous indignation that such a thing should happen in Israel. That's why, I, literally, I'm putting out for you just to consider, did did Saul have to know that the spirit of God was upon him? Or was it just the fact that the spirit of God was working in him and was upon him and out of his own spirit, out of his own self, this is what God is doing in and through him? And I bring all that to the table because I think that's important for you and I because oftentimes we think that we have to have like an Acts 2 moment to be able to have any wisdom of God. And I'm not even so sure that even happened here in the text. Might it just be that here Saul's going on and all of a sudden Saul in it? We know now, after the story, we know in it by God telling us that God, the Spirit of God has come into Saul and rushed into Saul. And now from his own self, he is speaking God truth just like he did back in chapter 10. Part of that is the righteous indignation that such a thing should happen to Israel and in Israel. Spirit-led righteous indignation. We also find out of this that there's a spirit-led call to arms. Saul has moved from spirit-led thinking, might I say, righteous indignation, to a spirit-led action. I'm not so sure I've honestly ever really had righteous indignation. Especially the word righteous. Righteous. Because usually what starts happening is something is sad, something is frustrating, even in our world today. And then by the time it starts getting acted out, it's like, yep, that's sinful me all showing in that one right there. And yet here in it, we're getting this clear understanding that this righteous indignation moved by the spirit of God in Saul is now moving into the right action into it, and he's calling people to arms by the way, the whole thing that goes on there is, is so similar to Judges 19 in that whole episode back then. But, but then third, there's a spirit-led, united, lead, united leadership. How often is leadership united? I'm so thankful for this church. I have never been in such a unitedness of leadership. Thank God. Spirit of God continue that, right? And Saul notes that he and Samuel... Somehow aren't together in this. Well, how does he know if Samuel's into the, together on this? Because the Spirit of God has rushed upon him. And in this, he, he, I think he's not making this up. I think he knows that he and Samuel are together in this. And then there's this spirit-led uniting of God's people. I mean, how often does that happen? I mean, think about it. Over the course of history, how often is it That God's people are actually united together. Man, we can just like eat each other up sometimes. And the people came out as one. That's a cool statement. Why is it that the people came out as one? Well, because the people are awesome? No. Because God is at work. And God is doing a work. And people and leadership don't come together as one until God is at work, unless God is at work in them. And so some 330,000 Israelites get stirred up together from this call to arms. And only by the Spirit of God will people do that. Listen, the text is so clear, and this is so important in it. The result of everything that is happening is not because of Saul, it's not because he's good looking. It's not even because he's thoughtful or respectful or humble so far as we see. It's not because he's a down-to-earth country boy charm in it all. All of this is happening because God's spirit is at work. Period. And I just sit back in this week and I thought, how often is it that God's people, over the couple centuries of Judges and now into Samuel, how often is it that the leaders and the people are united together I'd say like um, rarely, but they are here. In fact, here, God's people are not off on their own thing. They're not off in their own thing. They're not off through their own wisdom or in their own strength. They are thinking and they are acting together on this and in this and through this, through the Spirit of God at work, not by own strength. By the work of God in their life. And Saul is not the source of their being being saved from enslavement. And Saul is not their hope for being saved from enslavement. Let me make this very clear. The Spirit of God is their hope. Working in them. That is their hope for being saved from enslavement to the enemy. The Spirit of God is the one that is the hope. And the power and the work to prevent God's people from being enslaved to the enemy. Only by the enduring, empowering work of the Spirit of God in God's people. And yet we try and do it so much on our own strength. There is something for us to learn here pick up verse 9, and they said to the messengers who had come, uh, thus you shall say to the men uh, of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, like noon, one o'clock, you shall have salvation. Now, if you're in their situation, wouldn't that be a moment where you're just like feeling like, woo, we got, we're going to, man, victories are coming. Man, how encouraging that would be. Tomorrow, by this time when the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh they were glad, <laughs> it sounds a little flat, I think, for the reality, not they were glad, they were like thrilled to the core. Verse 10, therefore the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you, uh, not quite the truth, That would be a great conversation to have uh, at some point in time. How is it that God is working on this people and now they're telling a lie. They are deceiving the king another time. (laughs) So many of you want it a time now. Just can't. Bigger thing to hit. Verse 11, And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. By the way, do not just forget, he was just a little bit ago hiding in the baggage, plowing with his ox, And look what's happening now. He is leading 330,000 men in the military. Chapter 10, he was announced as king, but there was no work to prove that he was able to do that. Chapter 11, God's at work proving he's able to do that. Verse 11, And Saul the next day put the people in three companies, And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Victory. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, uh, shall Saul reign over us? Uh, I.e., who, weren't there some worthless men? Uh, bring those men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, absolutely, because they said bad things about me. That's not what it says. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. I, I, I can, I'm liking this guy even more. Saul is announced king in chapter 10. The dice roll, falls on Saul, tribe of Benjamin, clan of the Matrites, son of Kish. And he's so scared about it, even though he knows about it from the prior chapters. Even though he knows that he's going to be crowned as king, he's hiding in the baggage, scared to death. A 30-year-old, studly-looking dude. Samuel, verse 24, chapter 10 publicly announces Saul as king, and the people shout, long live the king, except for a few. He's announced as king, but can he be the king? I mean, there is no evidence that he can. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Here's your king! And we're like, where is he? Um, he's in the corner of the bathroom in the fetal position, scared to death. And then you bring him out. Here's your king. You're like, let's redo the dice. (laughs) There's no way, man. Actually, I get the worthless fellows. But here's the deal. God is at work. And God does things that we don't think. And God works in ways that we don't generally work. And God is at work here. And here in it, now, chapter 10, he's announced, we think everything is great. All the people are like, long live the king. But he hasn't done squat. And then God allows chapter 11 for not a reject, but for this guy to have victory before the people and demonstrate that he can be king. Friends, hear hear me in this. The hero of the story is not Saul. The hero of the story is not the 330 who came together to fight the war. Hero of the story is the spirit of God at work. And let me say this again. Among, in, and through God's people. We're not talking about pagans here. We're talking about the spirit of God at work in God's people in Israel. And God is the hero, not Saul. He has been allowed and empowered by God. It is the spirit of God that has stepped in and rushed on Saul. It is the spirit of God that was the reason for the righteous indignation. It was the Spirit of God who was the source behind Saul making a call to arms. It was the Spirit of God who was the reason for there being a united people and a united leadership. It was the Spirit of God who was the one behind the rightful, trembling dread after the Father. It was the Spirit of God who was the one that brought about their hope of salvation. It was the Spirit of God who was the one behind the enemy being defeated. It was the Spirit of God that was the one behind the enemy being scattered. It was the Spirit of God that was the one behind Saul in what he said and what he did. And it was the Spirit of God who brought his people deliverance from impending doom and enslavement and humiliation by the enemy. Philippians 2.13, 12 and 13, just listen. Therefore, my beloved, have you as always obeyed? So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, listen, listen. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I am all about pragmatic steps in the application of living for God and putting things off and putting things on for God's glory. But listen to me, and this, this text just proclaims and has reminded me personally that we so often try harder, try harder, try harder, and frankly, we think that as we try and move ourselves and get ourselves more rearranged and more together for the Lord, then the Lord will receive us. And that is all upside down, backwards, and messed up. Because you don't come to God for salvation by your works, and you don't stay in glorious relationship with the Lord by your works. Might I say it this way? Less trying harder, and far more face down dependence upon God. Oh, God, help me. How about that as a practical application? Because he is the only one that can bring saving from the enemy. He is the only one. You and I are powerless. Like, let's get over ourselves in thinking we're so awesome. We're not. We're rejects. Welcome to the island of misfits. And God loves it when rejects come to him. And he's not there ready to reject you or send you reject. I don't want to say things because it's Americans take it into stuff. God is not wanting to give you reject life. God is wanting to grow you in him. Total desperation for. Total dependence upon the Lord. More of that in us. Final verses of chapter 11. Verse 12. Let's just start there. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is this that Saul that shall reign over us bring the men, that they shall put him to death? But Saul said, No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Listen, I understand that they trashed me and I understand that they didn't bring me any gifts. (laughs) Listen. I just wonder in this, okay, this is just me. I just have been wondering in this if Saul is in this moment like, you know what? I don't deserve anything that I just got out of this. What am I doing trying to crush others? I think Saul is pouring out grace here. No, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Interesting. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Again. But this time it's different. In in chapters... Uh, uh, 8 and 9, Samuel has like this one-on-one with Saul. Saul, you're going to be king. And, And then in chapter 10, the dice roll and it's public. Saul is king. Long live the king. And now they've had a battle and Saul has proved himself before the people. And listen, you understand I'm saying he proved himself by the work of God in him and through him, right? And in that, the people are now to a place and now it's like a third kind of putting the king in place. And I'm telling you, I think this is a glorious moment for Israel. God has not given them a reject. I think God has placed them with a guy that really could take this. And even though God said, you've rejected me, God is pouring out grace on his people. And they there, they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all of the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Last thought. Last thought. Saul, a thoughtful, respectful, humble, used by God, Saul, first king of Israel. First king, the first king, the first king of Israel. Sorry, sometimes as a pastor, you see things and you learn things during the week you never saw before. And I love this. Love this thought. The first king of Israel is a conquering king who pours out grace, declares the divine work of deliverance from the enemy is to be done, does a renewing work of the kingdom, and gives all the glory to Yahweh. Does that sound like anyone to you? Let me kind of go this way. The first king of Israel is given by Yahweh, is confirmed and anointed by the Spirit of God. Plap, 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 Hey, John. To take on the enemy who brings divine victory over the enemy, uh, the cross and the empty tomb. And though having the rightful power and position to implement immediate judgment and death upon any who despised him and brought him no present, instead offers them grace and as a result of it, implements a kingdom renewal I am telling you, I'm looking at this, I'm writing these things down in my office this week, and I'm like, oh my word, all of this points to the coming king. The first king of Israel. And so many of these, and I usually don't go to these places where I'm trying to put things all together, but I'm telling you, it's so obvious on the page. I'm not saying that Saul theologians, I'm not saying he's a type of Christ, but as the first king of Israel, what's going on with Saul to this point, he is pointing to the ultimate king at this point. And we can't miss that. And out of that, what do the people do? They rejoice greatly. Like they rejoice greatly. (laughs) And because Jesus' coming is not just a kawinky dink of history, it's all been pointing to him, the king that would come. To provide and make available the deliverance from the impending enslavement of the enemy. And I think when God's people see this and learn this, as we see the whole of Scripture over the whole of time, it just brings out of us a sense of our desperation for the Lord, our dependence upon the Lord. Spirit of God, do a work in us. And there's a response. so we're going to have communion together. And what a way to respond. Listen, when we come and celebrate communion, and I do mean when we celebrate it, there are times of thoughtful, inward evaluation, absolutely. And yet with the text today, I think this is one of those times where it's like there's a there's an inward and outward celebration of what God has done. And it is represented in the bread and the cup. Because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come. And he gave his body, he, he shed his blood on the cross so that all who would receive him would become children of God. Grace poured out, sins forgiven, forever. The the spirit of God empowering the child of God to be able to live for the, the, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And it's that in that John 15, in that abiding reality, and what's going on here is we are, we, are, we are grafted into the trunk, into the, into the vine of Christ, and, and what's going on here is, is we are needing more dependence upon, and we are needing more uh, of who Christ is. And it's all right here with what's happening. And a text like this reminds us, friends, stop trying to work so hard. Please, let's just stop trying to work so hard to prove to God that we're worth it. Stop trying to be in that place of thinking before the Lord, saved and redeemed in Christ through the work of the cross and the empty tomb. Stop trying to think that you can even show day to day that you deserve him. Let him be God and be dependent upon him. Desperate for him. We need to see ourselves low that we can see his greatness. And when we are low and he is great, we become dependent upon him. And God so often throughout scripture brings his people low for the purpose of them becoming desperate for and dependent upon. And the cup and the bread represent the total dependence and desperation for one to come and save us. And he came. And he died on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And he says, come, all who would come unto me with the faith of a child. Come. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I am telling you, I just love you enough to say you are missing out, friend. Because you are walking through life with insecurity. Insecurity. Will I be able to work enough? Will I be able to know? Will I be able to? Will I be able to? Will I be able to? Stop it! For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're going to close here with having this time of communion, reflecting upon what God has done. Oh, might we increase our dependence upon God? The work of the Lord right now, right now. Oh, might we celebrate the work of the Lord. Oh, might coming out of us be that thing of, oh, God, increase dependence. God, I can't even work for you. I can't even want for you if you don't do a work in me. And so, Lord, we ask, do a work in us, right, church family? And so, Lord, that's what we do right now. You fall face down in front of you, face down before you, completely and utterly desperate. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not know Christ as their Savior, who has not come to that point of receiving Christ as their Savior, and they're wondering, what in the world are you talking about with this? God, I pray today that they would get with someone, talk with someone, and ask, what in the world was this dude talking about from Scripture? And Father, for those who have received you as their Savior, Father, the fact of the matter is, is, it's not just that we were dependent and we were desperate. We are dependent and we are desperate. And God, sometimes we lose sight of that. So I pray right now within us, Lord, you'd be stirring in us a, a heart of repentance, a heart of desperation, And a heart to call out to you. To give you praise and glory. For what you have done. That you have not rejected us. Even though we have rejected you. You love us. You are the God. You are the master of redeeming things. So father I pray for the spirit of God. To do a work in this room. In the hearts and the minds of us. As a people. And then now as we take of the cup and we take of the bread that we would be reminded that is where the power is at. Not in the bread, not in the cup, but what it represents in the work of Christ on the cross. And everything that comes out of that. Oh God, we are dependent upon you. and God, we celebrate your grace. We rejoice, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. You have taken care of it fully, perfectly, marvelously, and wonderfully. And therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure Paul goes on in chapter three and says, not that I have already obtained this or already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? And let me remind you of this, you do not muscle that out, you do not make it happen on your own, only by the work of God in our lives, only by Him. This week, more crying out for utter dependence upon and desperation for, Lord, I want to leave enslavement, God's people. I need your help. So, Harvest, you are loved. You are loved.